0: Father, we have just sung great truth. Fear not, you tell us, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And Lord, this morning as we sing From the depths of our hearts, I know there are people in this room who are struggling, who are suffering, who are questioning, who are doubting. And yet in your grace, you don't withdraw from us in those questions or in those moments or in those doubts. You draw near. You draw us to yourself. You are the up close and personal God who is infinitely and always good. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, I thank you that you have proven it in and through your son Jesus in dying the death we deserve. Having lived the life we couldn't to pay the price we couldn't. And so now as we open your word May your spirit work in our hearts. And may you love your people well this morning through your word and how I communicate it to them. And may we leave this place thinking higher thoughts of Christ and having fallen deeper in love with him. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. And if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I would invite you to open that copy to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, that's Old Testament, near the beginning of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible there for you. In the seat back of the pew in front of you, it's page 262 in that copy of the church Bible. And as you're finding your place there in Ruth 1, as we're working our way now through Ruth's story, it's just a beautiful love story. And we're still in the opening scenes to that story where it's not so pretty yet. It's still pretty ugly. So, but. Um, we're going to get there. Redemption is coming for Naomi and for Ruth. And after my initial sermon on the book of Ruth a couple of weeks ago, several of you met me in the back and you, you asked, uh, Pastor Ken, you, you didn't tell us who wrote the book of Ruth. Who, who wrote it down for us? Are you going to tell us? And so I teased you last Sunday and and said, you've got to come back next Sunday, which is today, if you want to know the answer, what I believe to be the answer to that question. And so I know the anticipation has been building in your hearts all week long, right? Some of you speak truth. Some of you don't. All right. Some of you are just being kind to me. So after the anticipation building all week long in anticipation of this question, I just have to say to you, we don't know. Aren't you glad you came this morning? But Jewish tradition, as well as most conservative Bible scholars, believe that Samuel wrote down Ruth's story for us. And that he did that sometime during the 40-year reign of a man named King David. But I would love to think that's only part of the story. And like Paul Harvey, I would love to think that maybe there's a rest of the story. I would love to think that King David is somehow involved in telling Ruth's story. Because it isn't just a good story full of surprising twists and turns with a blow-you-away ending. No, it's better than that because Ruth won't just be mother to a boy named Obed and grandmother to a man named Jesse. Ruth will be great-grandmother to a king named David, which also means that part of the that this is part of the backstory to another king who will be born in Bethlehem, whose name will be King Jesus. It's like when I met many of you for the very first time and I asked you about your story and you began telling me about your great-grandparents and your grandparents back in Romania or Ukraine or India. And I would love to think that, that one day while David was reigning as king, he, he sat down with Samuel and, and told Samuel his great-grandmother's story. And Samuel was like, oh, this is so good. I've just got to write this down. Now, I would love to think that's how it all went down, but I I, I can't be sure of that. But there is something I am sure of, that these words were written down because they were inspired by God Himself. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 say, all Scripture is breathed out by God Inspired by God and a profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, that the children of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice there, God's handprints are all over Ruth's story. But he isn't just inspiring the words that tell her story. He is both the composer and conductor of her story. That means the good, the bad, and the ugly. Chapter 1 contains some big time ugly. Because when a, na- a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons Malon and Kilion leave Bethlehem and the promised land for the wicked country of Moab in the middle of a famine, Elimelech and Malon and Kilion all die. For Naomi, it's ten years of misery in Moab, which is why verse 5 ends like this. The woman was left Without her two sons. And her husband. So there is some major hurt here. Burying your two sons and your husband. In an unfamiliar place. Surrounded by unfamiliar people. It's tragedy on steroids. But. When Naomi hears that God has visited his people back in Bethlehem and has provided food for them in Bethlehem, she decides to return to Bethlehem, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is coming back with her. In some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, in verses 15 through 18, Ruth turns to Naomi and says, where you go, I will go. I will not stay with my people. Your people will be my people. I will love you. I will stay with you. And your God will be my God. But I want you to notice here that it doesn't seem as though Naomi's very thrilled about Ruth coming back with her. Because it means that when Naomi walks into Bethlehem, people aren't just going to ask about where she's been and how it's been going. They're going to ask, who is this Moabite woman and why is she with you? And that's where we pick up the story now in verse 19. So you follow along in your copy of God's word, please. And so the two of them, that is Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said... Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her. They returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of our God. Now, this is still an ugly scene. I mean, our, our third grade Sunday school teachers here at Bethel aren't going to say to their students, you know, go home this afternoon and write down three ways you can be like Naomi. No, she's angry at God. She's blaming God because she's bitter against God. So this morning's big idea from this text is that when we are blind to the goodness of God, we will inevitably become bitter against God. That's Naomi. She believes that God has somehow withdrawn His goodness from her by going all scorched earth on her. And we can be right there with her. Let's just be honest this morning. Uh, We can think that I lost my job because God doesn't care, or I've contracted cancer because God's abandoned me. My marriage is struggling. My kids are rebelling because God's getting even with me. And in those moments, we need a fresh infusion of the truth of Nahum 1 verse 7, that the Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And so when life gets ugly, instead of becoming bitter against God, let's run to God and refuge in God. He is good. He is always good. He is infinitely good. He is working in all the ugly to work out all the ugly for our good. Do we believe that? I still remember the day that in our previous church, I had just finished preaching on a Sunday morning, I was making my way home, and I've told this story before in different in different venues, so if you've heard it, just bear with me, but I'm making my way across the street to the parsonage where we live there, and I heard sirens, lots of sirens, which wasn't unusual because we lived near Highway 67 in southern Illinois, a, a pretty major highway. And so I didn't think of it. I went home. I changed clothes into my football game watching clothes. And, and while I was doing that, the phone rang, and I picked it up. And it, on the other end, it was one of our church members saying, Pastor Ken, have you heard? I said, have I heard what? One of our families was just involved in a very serious automobile accident on their way home from church. That family lived one mile from the church facility. And as they were waiting to make a left-hand turn into their driveway, stopped. On the highway, a man in a pickup truck, going 60 miles per hour, drunk, rear-ended them. And the dad who was driving... Ended up in the back seat, and the back seat had crushed one of his daughter's legs between the back seat and the front seat. And when I arrived on scene, they were using firefighters, were using the jaws of life to to extricate her from the vehicle. And as I, I made my way into the ambulance to speak with the dad, whose two daughters were injured along with him in the accident, I'll never forget what he said when he looked up to me with blood coming down his face. He said, Pastor Ken, God's got this, and God is good. You see, what we know about God matters Especially in moments like that. It's Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, before I move on, some of you get on me for not finishing my stories. And so you're like, you know, how did it turn out? Did they live? Was everything okay? Okay. It, there were some tough days. The dad suffered a very major concussion that took him probably nearly two years to recover from. One daughter suffered a very severe laceration up and down her skull. The other daughter, who was caught between the back seat and the front seat, suffered a, such a severe broken leg that they life-flighted her to a St. Louis hospital. And And... After about a year or so, she fully recovered. So those of you, you don't have to get mad at me for not finishing the story. God does work all things for our good. We, we know that. And one of the reasons we know that is because of this story, Ruth's story, Naomi's story. But if we don't believe that in our story, then bitterness will take root in our heart like it does in Naomi's heart when she arrives at home in Bethlehem, accompanied by Ruth. Now imagine yourself in Naomi's sandals for a moment. Imagine walking back into Bethlehem after being gone for 10 years. This is the place you left behind to go to the godless nation of Moab, and now you're back. Without your husband and without your two sons and with a Moabite daughter-in-law. I would imagine that Naomi is hoping to silently slip into town under the radar and to reenter life in Bethlehem kind of incognito. But that doesn't happen in small towns. Everybody knows everybody because everybody's related to everybody. And so when Naomi arrives, word spreads like wildfire wildfire, and the whole town is stirred up. Now, now you big city folk up here, you, you may not get that. But if you grew up in a small southern Missouri town like I did, you get it. You know that all it takes in that small town is for one woman... At the local beauty shop to say, hey, you'll never guess who I saw on her way into town on Highway 71. I I can't be totally certain because it's been 10 years and she looks a lot older and, and maybe even a bit plumper. But I think you don't think you don't think Bible characters talk like that. But I think it's Naomi. And then word travels from the beauty shop next door to the coffee shop, and then across the street to the flower shop. And within minutes, everybody knows. Word travels fast in a small town with only a few hundred residents, just like Bethlehem. And so as Naomi and Ruth are arriving, Bethlehem is buzzing. And the women in town are wondering... Is, is this really Naomi? Because, because Elimelech isn't with her, and neither are Malon or Kilion. And who is that with her? I've never seen her before, but, but she looks like a Moabite. A Moabite? Yeah, 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 yeah. A Moabite. I mean, that's where they were, right? Yeah, that's where they were. But, but a Moabite? Are you sure that's Naomi? It's a super embarrassing moment for Naomi. Your your friends don't seem to recognize you and a Moabite girl is standing there with you. Now, it's easy for us on this side of the Bible to pile on Naomi here. Well, Naomi, we want to say, well, what did you expect? You left the promised land. You walked out from under God's hand of protection and provision. What did you think would happen? And as we're going to see in just a moment, Naomi's heart isn't yet where it should be. She's not happy with God. She seems to be resenting God. And that resentment is expressing itself in bitterness against God. But let's also give Naomi some credit here. And I'm going to to do something I don't usually do. I'm going to go off script here for just a moment. I love Naomi's honesty here. She's not coming back into town wearing a happy plastic smile, pretending that everything is capiche and good. She's honest. Listen, God can see through the facade, He knows what's going on in our hearts. And so in the midst of our suffering, when we're wondering and questioning and doubting, just tell Him. He already knows. Be honest. Be honest with your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Don't blow smoke. Don't don't sweep the stuff under the rug, the hurt, the pain. Listen, Naomi is hurting, and she's honest about her hurt. And she knows... And she believes that God is behind her suffering. So that's key. She's believing. Even in her profession here, she is, she is professing faith in her God, that He is real, that He is, that he is there, that, that he, he has orchestrated this suffering. And then let's also give Naomi credit here Because in returning to Bethlehem, she's doing the right thing, even though it's the hard thing. Where in your life is God calling you to do that? To do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing. Is there somewhere in your life that's like that for you this morning? Do you need to to walk out of this room later and go home and get together with your spouse and your kids and ask their forgiveness and say, I've blown it. I've been wrong. Is there something you need to come clean about? You need to do the right thing even though it's the hard thing. Is it, is it that you've you've become kind of a closet Christian at work or in your neighborhood? Do you need... To have a conversation with a friend or a coworker or a neighbor and just say, hey, listen, you want to know the reason I'm different? Is because I love and follow Jesus. Now, I don't know where that may be might be for you, but but listen, if God's grace can enable a bitter woman to do the hard thing because it's the right thing, then his grace can do the same for you. Because in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And it's his strength in Naomi's weakness that's enabling her to stand right here before her old friends in her hometown. You don't think she hears the whispers? You don't think she feels the stares? But she's willing to face the music. She blurts out the coming home speech she has probably rehearsed all the way home. And she abruptly announces, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara. Just like back in the Exodus when our ancestors grumbled against God because the water in the wilderness was bitter. That's me now, so call me bitter because that's how the Almighty, and by the way, that's the Hebrew word Shaddai, that's how the all-powerful Almighty has dealt with me. He has wielded his power, not to protect me, but to harm me. Because when I left here, I was full. But now, just ten years later, Jehovah God has brought me back empty. He stripped me of everything and left me with nothing. Now, let me just pause for a moment and, and interrupt Naomi here. Because remember who's standing there with her. Ruth. Ruth. God has taken me away full and brought me back empty. And here's Ruth standing with her. Maybe that makes Ruth less than nothing in Naomi's mind. Now, why would Naomi think that when Ruth has just expressed her undying love both to her and to her God? Perhaps, perhaps it's because Ruth would be a reminder, a live-in reminder, an everyday reminder of everything Naomi had lost. Listen, Naomi is coming back home with lots of memories. That's what we do with our family when we make our way back through one of our old hometowns, Grinnell, Iowa. We lived there for three plus years. That's not very long, but, but we made lots of good memories there. And so Joanne and I, we get choked up every time we drive by our old house in Grinnell and the, and the church there in Grinnell and especially the ice cream shop that was just down the block from our house in Grinnell. Dairy barn. You ever in Grinnell? Check out the Dairy Barn. You know, I cannot imagine what it would be like to drive through Grinnell after having lost Joanna. That must be what Naomi feels when she walks through the streets of Bethlehem. She'd walk by the town square where perhaps Elimelech had proposed to her. She'd walk by the park where she would take her two boys for playdates, and across from there she would see the synagogue where they had worshipped God together as a family. But that's all gone. Now all Naomi has left are memories of the way things were, and Ruth represents how different life now is. And although Naomi won't even acknowledge her daughter-in-law who's standing with her, she will acknowledge the depth of her pain to her old friends. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has testified against me. And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And I would imagine this morning that if we were honest, there are times where we find ourselves right here with Naomi, thinking what she's thinking, saying what she's saying ever feel like God's hand is against you? That his providence has been hard on you? Maybe it's at this very moment this morning that the burdens you are bearing and what you're facing seem to be too much for you because like with Naomi, it's just been one thing after another. And it feels as though neither the darkness nor the weight will ever lift from you. You aren't alone. Naomi has been there. And you and I need to hear what Naomi says here because there's something that she gets right here. She gets it right. It's when she says, The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi is correct. God is sovereign over everything, including my suffering. It's Daniel 4, verse 35. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In other words, God does all that he pleases even in our suffering, do you believe that God is sovereign, totally sovereign, even in our suffering, that he's in control of everything in our suffering? Because you know this, there are only three options when it comes to who's in control of this universe. Let me just share them with you real quick, okay? Everybody okay with that? All right. Option number one, nobody and nothing is in control of the universe. That's an option. The universe is just one colossal cosmic coincidence, as is everything that happens in the universe and in our lives. And there are lots of people today who subscribe to that option as well as to option number two, that someone or something other than God is in control, like fate or luck or karma, Good things happen because the stars are aligning for you and good fortune is smiling on you. And so you cross your fingers or you knock on wood, even though this is metal, but you knock on wood. You carry a rabbit's foot or a four leaf clover. Or maybe, maybe someone other than God is in control. Maybe it's the devil, maybe it's Satan. By the way, we believe in a personal devil here. We believe Satan is real. Amen? So is Satan in control? Because when you hit 13 straight red lights and you're late to work, that's Satan. And when you begin flipping out over those red lights, it's the devil made me do it. But listen, option one is And option two are neither biblical nor hopeful. While option three is the God of the Bible is in complete control of this universe and everything in it. Now, I'm not talking about the disconnected deity of deism that Bette Midler sang about back in the 80s that God is watching us from a distance. No, I'm talking about the up-close-and-personal God, the good and loving God the only wise, all-powerful God of the Bible, the God of Isaiah 45, verse 7, who says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so when Naomi sees God's hand directing her suffering, she is right. But what she doesn't see, and this is important, what she doesn't see is that God's hand is never disconnected from his heart. In Naomi's mind, God can't be sovereign over her suffering and still be good to her in her suffering. So Naomi gets it wrong when she says, the Lord has testified against me. She thinks God is out to get her, accusing her. As one theologian has said, we sometimes view God as the cosmic policeman just hiding out alongside the highway of life for an opportunity to pull us over and give us a ticket. And then on our court date, he takes the stand against us and points a finger of accusation at us and demands payment from us. We feel as though our suffering is punitive, that God is wielding his sovereign power against us to get even with us for some sin that we've committed. That's what Naomi is thinking. Which is why she's saying, a God who ordains suffering for me must be testifying against me. No, no, no. God does not relate to his children as a celestial cop who accuses, but as a loving father who saves. Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what? What does that mean? Well, since therefore we have now been declared righteous and justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, from the accusations of God from God getting even with us for our sin. And so when you trust in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, then there's no price left for you to pay because Jesus paid it all. There's no wrath for you to face because Jesus faced it all. There's no punishment for you to take because Jesus took it all. And so I need to ask, are you forever free? From facing the wrath and the punishment for your sins. Because you've called in faith on the one who took all of that for you. To remove it from you forever. Have you believed on Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and turned to him in saving faith? Because in Romans 10, verse 13, the Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Galatians 3, verse 26 says that we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Would you come to him? Would you trust in him? Would you believe on him? And when you do, when you become a child of God, when you are a child of God, then your suffering, listen, your suffering is never punitive. It is always and only redemptive. It's Romans 8, verse 34. Who could ever condemn one of God's people? One of God's children. Who could condemn? Nobody. Not God the Father, not God the Son, not God the Spirit, not anybody. Nobody can condemn us. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen, he is not accusing us. He is never testifying against us. He is only interceding for us. And that's true right here with Naomi. Little does she know, don't don't miss this, little does she know that God has emptied her hands. He has emptied her hands in order to fill her hands with something much better. And he's going to do it through the Moabite girl who's standing beside her. So when Naomi says that God is working against her, he isn't. He is working for her, even when she can't see it or feel it. Because in his providence, God has brought Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Don't miss that. It's the writer. Of Ruth's story, fixing our eyes on God's goodness in the midst of Naomi's suffering. There's a glimmer of hope here. There's a future for Naomi here and the harvest that God is bringing here. And although Naomi doesn't know it yet, God's hand is already working for her because it'll be through this harvest that he will fill her empty hands with evidence of his goodness. And that isn't just what God does for Naomi. It's what he does for you and me. And so the antidote to bitterness against God in the dark days is training our eyes to see the goodness of God in the everyday. And here are two practical ways that we can do that. Number one, dive deep into God's word. Dive deep into God's Word. Now, when I say that, I know that sounds like a Sunday school answer, right? I know that it sounds overly simplistic. I get it. But it's true. It's true. I know that when we're going through these episodes of suffering where the, the weight never seems to lift and the darkness is doing nothing but closing in constantly, that the, I get it. The last thing we want to do is open this book. Because God seems so far from us. But listen, it's what we need. It's what we need. One of the reasons that Ruth and Naomi's story is here is to show us that God is good all the time, even when we can't see it, even when we don't feel it, even when we question it. Romans 15 verse 4 says this, Whatever was written in former days, whatever was written in the Old Testament, whatever was written in Ruth and Naomi's story was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, get this, we might have hope. You know what that means? That means that God put Ruth and Naomi's story here for you. thousands of years before you ever showed up on earth he was writing this story for you as his child so that you can read it and have hope from it in this book God is showing us that he is our hope in our suffering because he is sovereign over our suffering he is working in that suffering to bring good from our suffering I mean this book is full of stories that prove that, from men who lost it all like Job and Joseph to a peasant girl turned queen named Esther to a prophet named Daniel. God has an unblemished track record of keeping his promises to bring good in our suffering. And as you study these stories, you are training your eyes to see the goodness of God through the darkness of your suffering. And when you do that, you'll be able to secondly identify evidences of God's goodness even in your suffering. Psalm 100, verse 5, it's a verse that we often read or preach on at Thanksgiving. But listen to this. For the Lord is good. That's perpetual present tense. In every moment, in every place, God is good. Not that He. it's not God will be good or God was good. No, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. By the way, that's us. We fit into that category. We fit into the all generations category. So we are surrounded by evidences of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. It's just that we're so often blind to them like Naomi here. So uh, just grab a notebook or a stenopad and, and begin a God is good list. And just for 30 days, write down 10 evidences of God's goodness to you. Because even when you can't understand the ways of God, you can still see evidences of the goodness of God. And that will guard your heart from becoming bitter against God. It's what William Cooper discovered in an insane asylum. When he picked up a Bible for the very first time, and after reading it for a few weeks, he became a follower of Jesus. And even though he continued to struggle with severe depression for the remainder of his life... He, by God's grace, was able to train his eyes to see through the darkness, to the light of God's goodness, and he wrote one of my favorite hymns, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Someday the pain will go away when it gives way to the eternal harvest of glory in the eternal goodness of your God. So trust Him, hope in Him, and run to Him. Because as Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8 say, My hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory my mighty rock my refuge is God so trust in him at all times o oh people pour out your heart before him God is a refuge for us amen Father may you may you open our eyes to the evidences of your goodness. Even in the midst of our darkness, point us to Jesus who proves that for all who know him, you are for us. So help us to be honest about our suffering. Help us not to sweep it under the rug or to put on a happy, plastic face. Help us to do the, the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. And help us to be able to see both the hope of your hand in our suffering and your goodness in our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.